0: Welcome to Industry Focus,
1: the podcast
0: that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day.
1: I'm your host Emily Flippin.
0: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan
1: Lewis, and today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods, Wildcard Wednesday, and we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, July 6, and I'm the host of this episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fools senior analyst, Asit Sharma, to revisit the online dating industry and talk about two key players, of course, Match Group and Bumble. Asit, thanks for joining.
0: Emily, thank you for having me. And I hope we don't bumble through this podcast. And I hope we can find a match for prospective investors who are looking for a good investment in this space.
1: I wish I was as quick-witted as you, Austin. I have zero puns planned throughout this episode. So, you know, you're setting the expectation high.
0: Zero puns are better than a lot of bad puns. So I think you're one step ahead already.
1: <laughs> well, we can agree to disagree there. I'm a pun enthusiast myself. Okay. Uh, but before we were getting into taping this episode, you said, you know, oh, I'm, I'm from a generation that didn't really use online dating. So I had to spend a lot of time getting up to speed on this industry. And um, I chuckled to myself because I am from a generation that used online dating, but I myself have never used. Any of these apps, I think I'm in the minority of, of millennials here who have never used, uh, you know, Tinder, for instance, which is owned by Match Group. So I'm in the same boat as you in a sense. I'm approaching this from a, a truly naive perspective.
0: Well, that's really cool to hear, Emily. And I should say that um, one of the things investing has taught me is to sort of leave my preconceptions at the door, and it has a funny way of taking you. Back full circle, so I could have this sort of curmudgeony view of online dating and say, you know, I remember when I was dating my wife, I was writing physical letters. But how different is that than using another platform to communicate with someone? And it it's funny, just in looking at an investment, it helps me become a better person, not such a grumpy person as I see technology change. I can actually sort of participate it and realize, you know, even even. The printing press was major technology in its time, right?
1: <laughs> well, you're already less senile than I am. I I, <laughs> I know when I'm older I'm going to be the grumpiest investor that has ever existed and uh that being said, I I was kind of intrigued by some of the trends that we've seen with online dating over the past year. Um in particular because I can distinctly remember having conversations with coworkers again co-workers that know the industry better than myself, just from being users of the products. Back in, I think it was probably February or March in 2020, uh, right when the pandemic was kicking off, and there was this really interesting question mark about what would happen to the online dating industry. Um, would it completely die during a pandemic? Would it thrive because we had nowhere else to go? Nobody really knew, and I think that the answer was yes. To both of those things, which again is completely unique. But when you think about the broad category of online dating, as you look out over the next maybe five plus years, how are you feeling about it?
0: I I'm feeling positive about it. You know, you had posed a question to me when we were prepping for this podcast. You were curious as, as to what was going to happen right after the pandemic, so is engagement online going to fall off as people start going back to the places in real life that they meet um, and and that organic interaction increases? And I do think people have a hunger for that. Um, Or will some of this remain as normal? And I think that we're going to see both things happening at the same time. I think you will see much more social interaction. People have a hunger to be back together and see each other face to face. But at the same time, we've discovered the beauty of interactions online in a way we didn't experience them before. Um, and I think that while it's easy to see like the next one or two years as a reaction to the pandemic, with some things have changed, I think what's harder to parse out is over time, are we still in the early stages of online engagement? Will there come a time, let's think outside five years, where people just have a hunger to dispense with scrolling through feeds and swiping and just want to be more spontaneous? Will Life returned to the unpredictability of meeting someone on a chance, on a lark, and I've got some thoughts about that. We could maybe at the end of the show uh, discuss a little bit
1: about that. Well, as an introvert, the idea of having to meet someone organically actually sounds like a nightmare to me. So I, I, I love the the kind of arms length of relationships that you could establish via apps like Tinder and Bumble, but I think what stands out to me when I think about the industry five years from now, and about the audience that has been curated during the pandemic. I do think it maybe will skew older. I I think about all the people in my life who were maybe reluctant to adopt technology that were then forced to do so during the pandemic. Things like Zoom, right? Video chatting. I think to an extent, we've seen that with an older demographic with dating apps as well. You couldn't leave, right? You couldn't meet people organically in most places last year. So therefore, they were forced to either sit at home with their loneliness, which nobody likes, or maybe download an app and see. If you can just talk to someone new. So in my mind, I think that maybe it has encouraged a slightly older audience to engage with apps that could be a real tailwind five years from now.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And I believe you've got some insight there. I'm just personally remembering during the pandemic, my parents talking about getting on a Zoom call to meet with the the group of older folks that they they normally meet with. They have like picnics together, they socialize, and these are People now who are you know twenty years older than than me, 20, 30 years older than me, and I was surprised that my parents actually took the leap and were avid Zoomers. And then of course we had some Zoom calls, et cetera. But that if you look around, that is everywhere. So now this facility with with the technology, what does it mean for those who may be? Um, let's not call them older. Uh, just because of my gray hairs, let's call them more uh, wiser, more mature. But you know, <laughs> this age group—that's that's beyond. Let's say that the eighteen-year-olds. I think in the near term, also the the pandemic had this effect of making all of us reassess where we were in our lives. You see this in so many white collar jobs where folks just aren't eager to jump back into a car and commute thirty minutes each way to work, and you see it also uh, even in entry level jobs in our society where. I think about the restaurant industry, which you and I both follow, they're having such trouble filling jobs because it's such a hard industry to work in. Uh, People really want more meaningful work time regardless of of the income they're making. You can translate this into just how everyone is taking stock of their lives regardless of their age. And I I definitely see that, Emily, that older people um, are thinking both about what they want to do with the rest of their lives and how to get the most fruitful time out of that but also they've got the comfort with the platforms now so there's a you know potential revenue growth that we never really thought about before the pandemic for companies like match group and bumble
1: the the last i'll say it's a question i guess conversation piece i want to pose to us before moving on to talk about some of these businesses is about the penetration in the online dating community one of the numbers that match group broke out was that 50% of north americans at one point have tried online dating and i found myself going back and forth on this number a lot i it was kind of the question of is this a glass half full or a glass half empty because in my mind 50% at least, it immediately struck me as a very large number of people, and I, I know that online dating is the most popular way to, for people to to meet their partners in today's day and age. But fifty percent struck me as really saturated. Now, the management team at Match Group talked about it like an opportunity, which just <laughs> took me by surprise, and I found myself going back and forth. Maybe it has to do with maybe the number of. Apps that that fifty percent are engaging with—it's more than just one. It's typically in the range of three to four. So maybe just monetizing that fifty percent is better. But I can't imagine you get more saturated than fifty percent when it comes to online dating, right?
0: Yeah, and and I'm slowly understanding about this business model that it favors companies which have multiple apps. Because no one is satisfied with just one app. You you try an app, and if the experience isn't good, then you can confide in a friend. And what is that friend going to tell you, Emily? Well, look, download this other app, because this is actually more appropriate for you. So it takes three to four before you hit on one that that you have some success with. So I like that about the model. As for using that to get past the 50%. I don't know, maybe it's going to be hard. Now, of course, yeah, management is is going to sell it to them. That's all 50% white space. And Match CFO Gary Swidler recently discussed this at an investors conference and said he said, "Look, there's no reason why dating apps can't be like Uber or Lyft." nearly everyone has tried to use some type of of car service. And that struck me as odd right off the bat, because I don't think they're at 100% penetration between Uber and Lyft. But maybe he was including the realm of people who have flagged a taxi down with with two fingers. Maybe he was including that group in there. But basically, his point was, it comes down to safety and comfort with the approach. So of that 50% that still hasn't tried a dating app, they're worried about uh, the vulnerability, uh, you know, of, of putting themselves out there. There's there's some kind of personal safety, especially I think if you are an introvert, which which Emily, you you always say that, but you don't strike me as much of an introvert. But we'll we'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> but um, there there is some barrier that you have to overcome in that sense. And he also said just the idea, the approach of these apps, which are mostly one to one, right? It's, it's one person trying to hit another person on on both sides. They're not group apps. One of the solutions that Swidler talked about was increasing investment in a space called social discovery, which we'll talk about in just a bit. But picture apps which are aimed at groups and not necessarily for dating. Now, this sounds like a lot of other Social media and platforms that that we've been looking at for years, but there are some differences which we'll talk about. So, in their opinion, in management's opinion, that is all opportunity. With you, Emily, I remain a little skeptical. I think, yeah, maybe they get to 52, 55%, 60%, and then it's about monetizing what they've already got the people who are the avid users.
1: And bringing that internationally, of course, which is a good kind of segue to to Match Group, obviously, quoting their CFO there prior. And when I was prepping for today's episode, thinking about comparing Match Group and Bumble, in my mind, I thought to myself, well, this is going to be a really quantitative discussion, right? It's all about active users. It's all about how well they monetize their users. And I found myself going down this very qualitative rabbit hole, in particular, looking at this Future of dating reports that Match Group had issued back, and I believe it was March of this year. It somehow went straight um, under my radar, but it has some really interesting stats regarding Tinder in particular, which is its most popular dating platform, and how it performed during the pandemic. So I apologize for everybody who was asking for more uh, quantitative data here for these businesses. We'll get to it. But first, I-, I really do want to sift through some of your thoughts about this report here because. It was interesting. And, and before we get into it, for people who aren't familiar with Tinder, um, it is their most popular app, but it's also aimed at mainly Gen Z customers. So these are 18 to 25 year olds. It has a younger audience. So don't extrapolate these numbers to be all of Match's platforms like OKCupid, okay Plenty of Fitch, Obviously Match, namesake um, dating platforms. This is just Tinder specific. Uh, what did you think about this report?
0: Some of it. Was uh, really great and informative in terms of looking at the future of platforms, the the near future of platforms. Uh, I also thought that the report was um, something of a story we've heard before. So the title is "The Future of Dating is Fluid," (laughs) and I thought to myself, "Well, the 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 past of dating is also fluid." Uh, Right now, on the side, I'm reading a book called "All Creatures Great and Small," and for those of you who watch a lot of series. This was a Netflix series. It's based on a vet, uh, veterinarian um, from the 20th century, James Harriet, and it describes his experiences as a small-town veterinarian in the English countryside in in the 1930s through the 1950s. Part of the book, he's, he's always examining uh, animals. And then part of the book, he's talking about this woman he has a crush on, who's this really like smart and attractive young farmer's daughter, who's also sophisticated. And his um, courting of her simultaneously, he lives with uh, the, the 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 person who owns a veterinary practice, and with the owner's younger brother Tristan. He often goes out to bars and pubs and has experiences. They date nurses, and it's all, all very comical and fun. But it doesn't look a lot different than online dating today because if you are in a totally virtual environment, you still have those crazy experiences, right? You you see someone's profile who looks really interesting and then you realize that, wow, that was a very weird person. Or at least these are the stories that I hear from uh, people who use these apps a lot. So uh, when you break down... The the conclusions they came up with, uh, some of these are are pandemic influenced, but some of them I think are just the uh, reflect the cyclical nature of human relationships. So let's go to one of the big observations that um, we'll see less predictable courtship. There'll be more fluidity in terms of expectations, more honesty about emotions. And more focus on experiences. That one to me, Emily, uh, is interesting because I think it reflects what's happened over the past year. I think we've all learned to become a little bit more um, honest about what we're going through because we've had this sort of mass therapy session in trying to get through COVID. I know I am, and and I will say a a quick pitch here for those of you who um, are Motley Fool subscribers and can view live. We have a session every Wednesday, the Mindset Session with Tim Byers and Brian Stoffel. I will say our colleague Tim Byers is unflinchingly honest About his emotional makeup. And I think over the last year I've learned to be a little bit more open about what I'm going through. But this is not just one episode of Motley Fool Live. I think it's our society as a whole. We're having more conversations about mental health, about where we are. So this struck me as something sort of predictable. Also, that some stats from the report, 60% of you Tinder users over the last year came on because they felt lonely. 43% of the users said, The app made them feel less lonely. And they've got some other uh, statistics as well that are pandemic related about conversations being longer, more messages being sent, things that you would expect. Now, to me, one of the big takeaways is that 50% of Tinder users had a video chat with a match during the pandemic and 40% plan to continue to that to do that even post-pandemic. I think these video conversations are here to stay, Emily. And I think regardless what happens in real life, even if we go back to mostly the way we were with commuting into work, having in-person meetings, I think there's something that's happened in our society which is that we are all much more receptive now. If we can't make it in person, it's, it's no big deal to video chat. I see this as a plus for these platforms. I see it as a plus for Tinder. Um, what, what are your thoughts, before we talk about the big predictions in the report, what are your thoughts about this report?
1: Well, the video chatting gave me a little bit of a, a chuckle, honestly, a little bit of a pause. Um, so My boyfriend and I started dating when I was in college and I went to college in China and he was not in China and so we did a decent amount of video chatting right in the early stages of our relationship and i remember the anxiety that was headed into our first video chat i i literally made a notebook of topics to talk about so there were no awkward silences and i remember being so nervous about that conversation so the idea of jumping on a social media platform <laughs> and literally video chatting with a complete stranger, to me is so strange. And seeing what a large percentage of people were willing to do that, presumably because so many people flocked to the platform from loneliness, really struck me by surprise. But what also struck me by surprise, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but one of Tinder's eight predictions for the next decade of dating was that people will always want to date someone close by. And it was this mix between People love video chatting, presumably, right? Digital dates will remain part of the new normal. I think that was their fourth prediction while also matching that with the desire to date somebody who is physically close to you. Um, in my mind, I guess those two things are always kind of counterintuitive, right? Why video chat with somebody if you could see them in person? But I do think that there is more fluidity, I guess, with how we perceive dating, or I should say how Tinder app users perceive dating.
0: Well, there's, that is a lot to unpack there, Emily. But I will say that I, I give you a lot of points for being so prepared for that first video date.
1: Um, I didn't need should, the notes, by the way. It there was, there was a pointless exercise. Yeah,
0: after a, like a minute or two, like anything else, right? You just you went with the flow. But this is re- reflective of something else we'll talk about later. I think in, in the bumble section of this podcast, you know, what happens when You have a lot of risk in a conversation, or you know, maybe you feel that it might not go well, Uh, but not to give too much away, I I find that very amusing, um, but also uh, in a very, uh, I think, charming way. And and I see that there's something that we can all relate to. I will say that um, one of their predictions stuck out to me: more people will want to see where things go. I'm confused by that one. So this prediction isn't that what online dating is supposed to facilitate right Let's see where things go because you know in real life you're taking all the risk you're meeting at a cafe uh, you're you're spending time it's uh, you know you you can leave the date all of a sudden we've all seen that on sitcoms right you find a clever way or you have a friend who calls you because you've sent them a signal under the table by via text to get you out of the date. I thought uh, online dating was about the ability to take some risk out and and to see where things went. But maybe um, within that context, people are willing to spend more time, and this is only good for platforms which are trying to monetize users. So that has an extension in average revenue per user, let's say for for Match Group, because what it means is that after a while, you're going to have to go from Tinder, the freemium version, which is the the version you start out with, to one of their levels. I think there's gold, and uh, the other one I think is is plus. Correct?
1: Platinum. Yeah.
0: Platinum. Sorry. Yeah. So so you're going to want to upgrade, and and that's good. If there's more uncertainty in our society, and the pandemic has made people more willing to to take more time. So I thought that was um, interesting. Here's another one that I I again this may be an age thing. It, unpack this one for me. Small touches will have a big impact. There was a 23% increase in cuddle needs on Tinder. Can you unpack what that means and also what do you think about that? Small touches will have a big impact.
1: This was by far out of the 8 predictions that Tinder had for the next next decade. The one that left me scratching my head the most because they seemed to extrapolate this point based off the usage of the word cuddle in bios and presumably that was in part probably a lot of loneliness that people were experiencing, especially single people who lived by themselves or or with a roommate, right? And they just wanted that little cuddle right the the connection that they hadn't had I, I'm not sure this stays post-pandemic, if I'm honest with you. Um, I'm not sure if I extrapolate the need for cuddles out for the next decade at a higher rate than the cuddle needs were for in 2019. But to your point, I'm not sure it matters for Tinder or for Match Group because a lot of these predictions, including more transparency, more authentic, authenticity, more focus on activities, all of these things are pointing towards Tinder being less of a platform where you meet your spouse and more of a platform where you meet lots of different people who have different needs and desires. And maybe you do meet your spouse, right? Maybe your spouse is one of those people. But maybe you meet people you just date for a couple weeks. Maybe you meet friends. Maybe you meet groups. Um, And I think that a lot of that focus has been maybe shifted away from the spouse and the very clear courtship that you expect when meeting somebody on Tinder. And well, some people expect when meeting somebody on Tinder, and more towards a fluid option to do whatever you want. But you're right, the the cuddle thing did leave me scratching my head.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good explanation. And again, apologies to those who are looking for something more quantitative out of this. But actually, this is very important to the the conversation about the platform. Because I think this idea of um, an increase in the mention of cuddles, the need for cuddles is expressing a human emotion, which is uh, really relevant to the, the the um, performance of the platform and also its relevance to society. So we're getting more comfortable as a group expressing our need to be close to other people. Again, that doesn't mean that you want to cuddle with a partner. I think what I take out of that is there's an increase in people wanting to be connected. And the easy thing for someone my age is to say, well, that means that it's not great for the platform. People want to get together in real life and, and, and feel the warmth of a human touch. But I think really what we can extrapolate out of this is that the platform provides that virtual cuddle just by expressing that thought and having someone reciprocate that maybe in their Profile. You see someone else's profile who also mentions the need for a cuddle. There's some connection there. So um, I will be looking at this if they happen to put out a report next year to, to see <laughs> what happened with those mentions. If if they do, and if I happen to remember it, it'll be of interest to me.
1: Well, for the sake of adding something quantitative to this discussion before we we move on for the conversation around Bumble, which is a really interesting conversation, um, maybe let's do a little comparison of pandemic and and recent performance for Match Group. Um, Some of the numbers that I pulled from the pandemic just for a brief overview is they saw a huge increase in usage from the app itself. So there's a 42% increase in matches, um, an 11% increase in swipes all during the pandemic. And that led to Decent revenue growth, 12% year over year, but their average revenue per user really struggled because a lot of these little add-ons, right? These uh, a la carte purchases, super likes on the Tinder platform, they just immediately lost value when you weren't actually meeting up with the person. So they weren't able to monetize the platform as well, despite it being more popular. And what I really like to see in their most recent quarters that they've retained a lot of the popularity while also increasing the monetization of their platform and they still had amazing i think it was 23% revenue growth in the most recent quarter 12% subscriber growth but more importantly that average revenue per subscriber was up nearly 10% i think it was 64 cents on average per subscriber which did rise across every single brand in Match Group's uh, collection of dating apps so to me i i looking at these numbers i got really excited about this business all over again
0: yeah, I mean, that revenue growth, uh, interesting, 18% of it from Tinder and 30% of it from non-Tinder uh, platforms. So you mentioned Hinge, OkCupid, um, Chispa, BLK in our notes. Match Group is really a portfolio business. So we tend to equate Tinder with Match Group because it's the biggest revenue driver. But um, I wanted to point out or call out Hinge here because that is a really fast-growing app with Millennial and younger generations. And so far, they're basically a North American app, although they've got some uh, exposure in the UK. So when we look at international expansion, that is a candidate for future growth. They've got um, apps like Pears, which is uh, pretty um, well known in Taiwan, South Korea. They have one called Plenty of Fish, which I'd never heard of, Emily. You <laughs> so haven't seen the
1: ads for Plenty of Fish?
0: no and I don't know like what I'm watching that I don't see ads for plenty of fish I tend to watch some obscure things maybe that's it <laughs> but uh, what do you happen to know what this is or can you tell from the the commercials what I I it?
1: think and I am solely basing this off of the TV commercials I think I saw when I was in middle school or high school I think it's a dating site aimed at older users um, apologies to anybody who uses it if i if I've horribly incorrectly misrepresented that platform, but I believe that's what Plenty of Fish is.
0: Okay. Well, we give you the picture though, right? This is a company that has um, multiple apps because as we said before, that's how you win in this game is by being a portfolio company and getting a user, having them have three or four other apps which are within your own brand portfolio and then monetizing that. And I must say, Emily, I hadn't looked at these financials in a while. I was really impressed just looking at the financial statements. The company had operating income in the most recent quarter of 189 million dollars. That's on 667 million dollars in revenue in one quarter. So a solidly profitable company um, with pretty decent cash flows. They do have a fair amount of debt on the balance sheet. I think um, you'll probably know this better than me. I, I'm guessing that was uh, came with the spinoff. Uh, last year, so so they took some debt with them uh, as a uh, public company now, but not uh, too not not too difficult a, a debt burden. It's let's see, it's about 3.8 billion dollars of debt on the books um, versus current assets of 1.2 billion. So while that doesn't look great in terms of uh, the ability to pay something like that off very quickly cash flows are solid. So, I can definitely see some refinancings in the future, paying down those senior notes. Um, The debt here isn't that much of an issue. Now, for me, I'm looking at these financials and thinking about market share because I have always tended to think of Match as a one-to-one company. So, it's providing apps that are connecting singles and that's how it's going to grow. But increasingly, that's not where the company is headed, at least in terms of making their total addressable market bigger. That actually is going to come from things like this HyperConnect acquisition that the company made earlier this year that we we briefly mentioned or alluded to above. So HyperConnect is a South Korean company. Um, Match acquired them for about $1.7 billion earlier this year, and it specializes in something called social discovery. So social discovery, we have to get to the bottom of this. Uh, This may sound like just another social platform, for example, Facebook or Twitter. But social discovery is about connecting disparate people and HyperConnect's big calling card is its ability to connect people in real time across languages. So you can communicate in real time With someone in South Korea, and you can be speaking English, they can be speaking South Korean, and it will help you uh, have this real time interaction. The company has two apps, Azar and Hakuna Live. So, Azar lets you have one to one interaction, and Hakuna Live is sort of like a live video broadcast platform. The big thing here is that these platforms really aren't dating platforms, they're just more about connecting people together. So some thoughts on this Emily cuz you know part of this balance sheet that's grown so big is this acquisition which was the biggest in Match Match Group's history so you're looking at the future it's not all about one to one connecting singles
1: I love these acquisitions I will admit that I think they're bold bets uh this is a company that has been solely focused on that one to one experience so expanding into things like live video broadcasting can scare off lots of people, and and I I do think it makes me a bit nervous. But I also think we have to recognize that dating and connections look differently depending on where you are in the world and understanding your background and culture. So I I like the boldness of the move, and I like the idea that Match Group is not going to be this in particular North American dating powerhouse, but rather a platform of platforms that are focused on connecting people across the globe. I like that idea. Um, I will say becoming increasingly international does have its own risks. And in the most recent quarter, they did call out the really low vaccination rates in Japan as a potential risk for them, right? That means lower monetization potential. And, and Japan's a big market for them, with pairs in particular. So as we look at this increasingly international business, I it's harder to just look at the trends that we see here in the United States or North America broadly and say, okay, well, this works here, so we're gonna port it over to Japan or South Korea or Taiwan. And in reality, I think think it's needs to be acquired because it's so unique.
0: Yeah, I, I totally see the caution around there. But I want to also just um, let's imagine something as well. I think there's the need for a super app in South Korea, in Japan, in China. Um, these are three really big industrialized companies with youth populations, which are in decline versus previous years declining birth rates. Um, not so much India, Vietnam, and some other countries in Asia, but at least these three big ones. There is a place for an app to connect disenchanted youth who have been locked out of the real estate market because it's so expensive to buy your own home, who have rebelled against getting married early as the cultures uh, promote. And now we're on sort of the, the back side of that demographic equation. It's an economic problem that all three countries face. I think South Korea most severely, but China's not far behind with all the missteps they had with their one-child policy over the past few decades. And Japan, increasingly, the youth are, again, not getting married at the rates they used to. So, not that you need marriage in a society, we could debate that all day long, but I do think there is a place for disenchanted youth to connect, that's still to be created in a virtual space or metaverse type space. And it strikes me that Match Group, with its big balance sheet, its um, inclination to acquire good apps and uh, put their own uh, sort of uh, integrated platforms behind them, I think there's some room here in the future for them to concentrate on Asia as a really not not a booming market in the way we tend to think of Asia, but a market where there are some hidden uh, revenue streams. But this is just a thought for management. If you're listening, give it a shot. It's just a you know just a fraction of your R and D budget.
1: I love that. And as we run out of time here, let's not forget to talk about probably the newest, biggest competitor to Match Group, at least in the United States, that recently went public, and that's Bumble. I, I am kicking myself because I can't remember off the top of my head, Asit, if we talked about Bumble on Industry Focus before. I, I will say it's not one that I'm not as—it's one that I'm not as excited about as Match Group for a collection of reasons. I think maybe that's why I've been hesitant to cover it. But it's a woman-first dating app, so it's—you can think about it in the same vein as Tinder, but women have to make the first move. So uh, theoretically, it's more attractive for, for a male audience, right? Because you're the one who is kind of catalyzing or getting a conversation catalyzed to yourself. And it's female first in the sense that, well, it empowers women to make the first move and to maybe feel safe and comfortable in starting those conversations. I think in practice, it, it ends up, Being a little strange um, just based off conversations I've had with people who use it. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about Bumble in this space.
0: I I think Bumble is an idea that's still in its early stages. They are, I mean, ostensibly from the numbers doing pretty well. They saw a 43% increase in year-over-year revenue. The app itself grew 61%. So there's definitely uptake of the idea. But the question is, over time, Uh, is Bumble's unique selling proposition all that much more powerful than any one of the Match Group apps? I think there is something that is comforting. Let's say that your issue is safety, as uh, earlier we mentioned, uh, the CFO of Match Group pointing out a stumbling block for for such apps. Then I think Bumble is attractive. And I'm not sure which it's more Uh, attractive to i I can see both sides as, as you mentioned I think it does put the ball in uh, men's court and that's great so there is um, I think for some men a real attraction to that that here's where you know you can start the conversation and you get to present yourself in a bit more of a holistic way than say one of match group's apps and I, I think but you know from the other side this will appeal and does appeal to women who want to feel empowered. The question, though, and this is an age-old question, you know, becomes: well, What is women's empowerment? Maybe it's just the ability to use any app that you select, and and what is a safe conversation anyway? We'll we'll talk about that in just a minute. But um, I, you know, I'm not as familiar with Bumble. We haven't talked about it on Industry Focus, and I think part of the reason is that maybe the the growth rates have to be a little in excess of what they are to catch our eye. Now, I know that sounds crazy, right? They're growing at a 43% clip year over year, what more do you want? But I think as a number two challenger, you you have to have something extremely persuasive. And, and I, I can think of so many companies in the tech industry that are small challengers, but have growth rates that are so much in excess of the leaders that you can't help but look at them. And I think the fact that we haven't discussed Bumble or, or it's not top of mind for you, Emily, and I, I know you have thought a lot about Match Group says something as well that it's It's a stock that you want to keep your eye on, but there's something inherently uh, dubious about the business model for the long term. At least that seems to be um the expression of a lot of investors that I've just chatted with really briefly um since Bumble. I mean, since it was growing as a private company, it's just a recent, uh, IPO, but but you also mentioned, Emily, when we were prepping for this episode, that you had some uh, concerns outside of the business proposition about the company
1: it's it's funny. I, I have concerns. They have substantial debt. they're they're not profitable. They also only break down average revenue per paying user as opposed to match group, which does average revenue per user. And I think that doesn't give quite a clear picture about their monetization potential. Um, all of that being said, I, I love how you framed up the conversation around Bumble, Ausset, by saying, is it something that you have to look at? And I've never had the conversation because despite following and investing in Match Group, I've never felt threatened by Bumble, right? I've never thought, oh, I have to look at Bumble until last week when I saw this article float by my desk that said they're testing this thing called a safe space dating spot, like a physical location. Where people and app users can meet up, and it got me thinking. I was like, "Is this the thing that sets Bumble apart from from Tinder or Hinge? Is this the thing that gets uh, catalyzes engagement and monetization?" Um, it certainly made me turn my head.
0: <laughs> right, very interesting. So you sent me this article. This was um, in Bloomberg on July twenty fourth. They're going to open a cafe and wine bar for daters, networkers, and friends. Um, it's been in the works for a while. It's going to be called Bumble Brew. This will be opened, uh, I believe, in uh, New York City. I think that um, it's it's an interesting idea as an extension of the business model, but it brings up the same questions. Just what is, uh, you know, a, a safe cafe or a a cafe that's dedicated for daters and networkers? it reminds me of those startups in silicon valley from a few years ago that recreated the municipal bus right an app what what this this company is going to do is we figured out that if you take a large vehicle and you have it at a certain predictable route and people pay when they get on that you can make you know a ton of money doing this and we want to raise hundreds of millions of dollars in capital for this idea congratulations you just created the bus route. <laughs> um, there were several companies like that. And this is sort of those weird like, ideas that doesn't sound like it's going to translate well IRL in, in real life, because that's exactly what restaurants and cafes are for. They are for people who are dating, for people who are networking, and for people who are friends. That's where you go to to meet. And you call the shots when you decide to meet at a restaurant with a date. If it's a first date, yeah, you might pick a space that to you is a safe space. It's a place you're a regular at or you know it's got an easy exit. If you want that friend to text you or call you when you're having a really bad date, there are ways you can set up a safe space on your own terms. I'm not sure that we need a a dedicated restaurant for people to feel that um, safety. However, I, I do get that in the society we live in today, we need spaces that people feel safe in, and whether this is to have conversations about politics or religion, or perhaps you know in the dating sphere, we we always need spaces where we feel we can meet with uh, fellow people and at least um, have you know our substantial relationships and, and arguments. That's just part of today's society. It's A more risk-averse society from when I was younger, but some parts of it I like in that it's um, striving to be. Our society is. I know this may not sound like it to those of you who watch the news, but our society is striving to be more inclusive on several fronts. So I totally get the sentiment behind this. I don't think it really is going to make much of a dent, you know, in their financials. I don't think it's meant to be. What it will do for Bumble's brand. Um, I don't know maybe, maybe it makes them more visible in a place like New York City where you've got part of your addressable market and it's such a, a dense place but but what are your thoughts about this Emily does this uh, sort of, lessen your confusion around the concept or, or make you more interested in buying it? Does it clarify anything for you?
1: It, it confused me even more because we talk about these apps in a digital world and how dating is going digital and this big investment in physical space. And I think there's, of course, physical space when it comes to dating. It's impossible to, to not have it. But it, I think in order for this to mean something financially for, for Bumble, it would require a huge amount of investments across at least the United States, potentially across the globe in a way that I don't think is actually going to be meaningful for them. But I will say, I, I got to chuckle myself just imagining, you know, if I was single living in New York City, um, Popping myself down on a Saturday morning in, in the Bumble Cafe and then organizing my 30 minute dates one right after the other and thinking to myself, well, wouldn't that be wonderfully convenient? Um, but I'm not sure if anyone wants to approach dating like a business meeting. So I will see if this is successful. I certainly think it's good for their brand, right? Having having big spaces, having that big sign, that awareness in a really visible area, I think certainly does something to keep Bumble part of the conversation. But I agree also with your takeaway that probably doesn't change much.
0: Well, if there's one place where it works if you are going to run your romantic life as a business. I guess New York would be the place, right? So I think they got the location, right?
1: It's a problem that I've, I've, I've never had in my life, right? Having too many dates, but somebody out there, I will imagine, will use the Bumble Cafe for exactly that.
0: <laughs> Certainly.
1: Well, Asit, I, I'd continue to have this conversation, but you know, I think my, my next date has arrived. <laughs> So I'm going to shuffle you out of that the cafe and express the next guest in. No, I'm joking. But thank you for, for joining.
0: Yes, yeah, sounds sounds great, Emily. I leave having learned a lot. I will take notes as I prepare for my next date so I can do better <laughs> next time. But this was a blast as always.
1: It's always fun. And Fools, thanks for, for playing along with us for this episode. It was a uh, fun Kind of conversation to have. I love when we have these qualitative discussions. Um, and yeah, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out, don't be afraid to email us, as always, at industryfocus@fool.com. But as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what we say. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asat Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and full on.